I've been to Rome twice, once in the blistering heat of July, which I would not recommend, and the second time in March, 2020. Yes, pre-lockdown, I stood outside the Vatican with not a soul in sight. Be it, my two trips felt very different, I love Rome, and so does my guest today. I'm Will Stewart, and you're listening to A Cook's Library. Katie Parler is a cookbook author and editor of over 30 books, a podcast host, Gola, and she lives in Rome. Before our chat, I didn't know much about the Mboka cookbook series, Mboka being in the mouth. They're very rare, now very expensive, and very mad. But first, we talk about one of my favourite restaurants in the world. Our favourite restaurant, which is definitely not the best food, but was Darfilitaro, our Santa Barbara. Um, I don't know if it was very Roman. So, uh, Darfilitaro kind of... It's one of those institutions that is, it's kind of unique these days, right? Because it specializes in fried cod fillets and beans, which used Mm. to be like the street food people would just walk out of their houses for and go eat at a stall. Now we don't have stalls like that. Those are long gone. You know, it's kind of one of those time capsules and it doesn't, it's so Roman, but it doesn't feel like it has any, you know, competitors because... You would think, okay, like there are a million trattoria, they all serve the same exact thing. Why aren't there a million of these hole-in-the-wall cod joints? But that's kind of the, you know, the way that cuisine changes and evolves. As we were there, the owner was, um, he was sat behind us playing like really loud old-school Italian music and singing and on Amazon ordering a karaoke kit, like obviously for the restaurant. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, and, I mean, does that all that fried food kind of stems... It was in the ghetto they used to fry food, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, fried food was is caloric. It's something that you can make quickly on the street. In fact, ideally, you want to make it outside. And in places where there is still quite a bit of poverty, like Palermo and Naples, you do see... And Bari, for that matter, you still do see the outdoor frying stations that are, you know, kind of unofficial businesses, not perhaps like following all the rules and regulations, but really a part of like the social fabric of those cities because, you know, at a certain hour you go out, you go for a walk, you grab something fried and that's like a substitute meal. Um, And, you know, in the four centuries that there was a Jewish ghetto in Rome, a lot of people lived in extremely fire prone, cramped dwellings. So outdoor or communal dining and baking was the norm. But we still do have, you know, a lot of home cooking and trattoria cooking in the ghetto that evokes that fried food uh, necessity. I guess it also makes most things taste pretty nice. If you're living in absolute poverty, there's probably not the freshest ingredients. Yeah, I mean, there there were definitely, I mean, what we know about impoverished cultures and marginalized communities is that regardless of how deprived they are in the case of the Jewish community by the Pope and his regulations to separate them from the Roman Catholics, um, people still want their food to taste good. So I think, you know, that we find that all over uh, Italy and beyond. So how did you end up in Rome? People probably hear you and sound the American accent. Oh yeah, I'm not from Rome. Um, <laughs> And so I, I, I was really interested in history and classics when I was um, in high school. So I studied Latin and visited with my Latin class in 1996 when I was a sophomore and was like, okay, I'm moving to Italy when I grew up. That's it. So I worked really hard in college 
um, at many simultaneous jobs to set aside some funds to move here, um, which I did in, in 2003. Did you work in kitchens? I worked front of house. That's always been like, that's, right. you know, how my family uh, business works. That's, it's sort of my preferred role in hospitality. Like my dad has a restaurant in New Jersey. I love the like hosting nature of dining. I love cooking. I love baking, but I'm like a passionate host. I'm really like into eating, <laughs> you know, like even more. And so you, you end up in Rome post-school and then you just in taking as much food as you can over those years and learning about the history. Yeah, like I figured out pretty early on that while there are some characteristics that you could assert are distinctly Italian, uh, the consumption of pasta, which became a universal custom in the 20th century, for example, there is still a lot of regional variation. So I like, I was like, okay, well, I'm in Rome. I get that cuisine. I'm studying that and learning that. Let me go to Abruzzo in and to the Dolomites and to um, Sicily and like really delve into like what makes city cuisines, village cuisines and rural cuisines unique. And, you know, I'm always I've always been very consumed by history. And so I think I, I just. I was very enthusiastic about traveling and like reflecting on what I was eating. Rome is the one city, you know, people say like oh, when you go to a city, you just can't avoid the culture and the history. Rome, you like literally cannot. Yes, you may not. It's not allowed. The most of the pasta that we all eat is Roman pasta. And I think obviously pasta is this Italian thing. Well, I mean, pasta is a great, pasta is a great symbol of Italy because it's one that was the, literally the object of propaganda, right? The government drummed up affection for pasta, uh, implemented pasta production across the peninsula where there had previously not been pasta consumption except on holidays. Like if you were in the boonies in Basilicata, you had pasta on like Easter and Christmas and like maybe the patron saint of your village. Like it was so luxurious. You know, whereas in Sicily, they've been consuming pasta in a really sort of modern sense since the Arab conquest of the island in the ninth century. So there are places where it's deeply ingrained, to use a wheat pun. And, you know, one of the critical features of the Italianization of, uh, of this country was like the fascist era, 20 years in which the government uses food and beverages for leverage, either to justify colonial campaigns or to suppress people's appetites um, because there were food shortages. And then once they were like so stoked that everyone was eating pasta... They're like, okay, just kidding. Pasta makes you weak. Now you have to eat rice because there were grain shortages. So like there are all of these ways in which politics and identity and consumption are really tangled up in a part of Italy that we don't like to talk about because the fascist era was a fucking nightmare for many, many people and continues to wreak havoc on the country today. But, you know, it's a, it's, Italy's not like rushing towards a reckoning. Don't get me wrong. But it's, a, it's now in, you know, we're now almost a century from when Mussolini took power. And I think people are going to have a, a much deeper historical perspective to see how that era determined the way that Italians view themselves and consume food. It's, fa it's fascinating. And I'm really looking forward to future scholarship on it. This kind of, I think, so I've been looking into the Mbocca series and it's mental. Mental, beyond. And the one thing I've sort of found, people talking about how it's, 
it was bef- it was written before Italy when it was more like Italy kind of had I don't know if kingdoms is the right word, but it wasn't the like the unified sense of place that we know now. Yeah, so I mean, they still make regional cookbooks here. Um so just to like sort of give a timeline, Italy is officially unified in the late 19th century. There was an interest in talking about regional differences in cuisine at the turn of the 20th century. And and Il Vespro, a Palermo-based publisher, launched a weird, bizarre, and ambitious project, which was to get, you know, 20-some-odd volumes dedicated to sometimes a single region, sometimes a city, and sometimes a pair of regions, and, like, have someone kind of create bizarre drawings, not just someone... um, uh, this guy Rodo Santino, um, and very like fear and loathing esque, like Ralph Steadman kind of drawings. So tripped out, you're you know you'll see the covers are very vibrant and they're made out of cardboard. The inside is made out of oatmeal paper, and then each recipe has three translations. One is in the regional dialect, one is in Italian, and one is in English. And isn't there a translation in the back? for the regional dialect because the Sicilian dialect is quite hard to understand, isn't it? There are, yeah, so there are some, uh, kind of like a glossary at the end of, right. uh, at the end of some of the volumes. Also, the books are like, they may have had the same publishing house, but they all f- feel pretty distinct. Some are really like narrative. Some are like written by authors who are writing about a place that they grew up and they're sharing all of these anecdotes and experiences of their youth. And others are just like recipe, like more like reporting recipes. Are they like, are they famous authors? Is it clear who's writing it? They, the authors would have been like well-known cultural writers of the time. Now they're not names that people know about. Like when people talk about famous food uh, personalities and writers, they talk about Adaboni. They talk about Bartolomeo Scopi. (laughs) You know, like the rena- the papal Renaissance chef, um, and and less about these like pretty obscure books because I've tried to like contact the authors, I've tried to contact the artists, I've tried to like reach out and like make some connection and be like, what's a- who formed Il Vespro? Why did it dissolve? And like, whose mm-hmm. idea was all of this? And I haven't had any success getting answers but i know that you investigated there's a, a website yeah. dedicated to the Invoca series right yeah have you seen that i have yeah and they have like a video and everything it it really disappointed me in one part because it's these I mean, these two guys who aren't chefs but are italian and one of them has a copy of the book and they go to the town village and they meet everyone and they decide to cook a menu from four of the books and from a chef's point of view four delicious things but like you could find those anywhere at like decent italian restaurants so like in the beginning of the video there's eels and barola wine lasagna and pork blood sauce like amazing stuff i've literally never heard of and then they cook like soupli which is great (laughs) yeah soupli is fine but not when there's a recipe for like cooking lamb on uh roof tiles over olive wood I'm sure there are hidden over Italy. You could go on like a quest to try and find some. Oh, for sure. I actually had, I was walking down the street um, near Piazza Navona yes, uh, 
I don't even, what is time like in a pandemic? I'm like, yesterday, no, it was last week. And I like pause in front of the antiquarian bookshop and in like a beam of light is just like bleaching the cover of Milano in Bocca. It's the only book in the window that doesn't have a price tag on it. And all the other price tags are like 2,500 euros or like whatever. So I call them and I'm like, hey, how much is your Milano in Bocca? And they're like, 50 euros. Oh my God. If you do a a quick eBay search, you will find two things. The first editions, which are from 74 to 76 or 77. The authentic first editions from Il Vespro. Well, really, it kind of ranges anywhere from like 300 to 800 euros. The cheap, quote unquote, cheap ones, which are like, you know, 60 to 150 euros are a 1986 reprinting by a completely different publisher. And basically the people who have those and have figured out Imboca original versions are valuable are trying to trick people into buying the newer version. So the fact that I found a first edition Milan Milano in Boca for 50 bucks. And you bought it. Oh, hell yeah. I was like, put that aside. I'm coming down there. You know, because I have have, um, almost all of the uh, volumes, but I bought them three, two and three years ago when they were 25 euros on eBay. You know, the Milano and Boca one, it's got like kind of a funny cover with a lot of indiscernible things going on my favorite cook my favorite version is actually it's not really i don't know uh really about book collecting except i do collect this series um but there was sicilia in Bocca, which came out in like 76 or something um and then sicilia e le isole came out in 78 i try to open the book as little as possible um and all that information is on pages that i have to like really excavate so this um was this the first one you got which happens to be your favorite so sicilia in Bocca is uh is the first sicily copy that i got my favorite one is called sicilia e le isole so they put out a second book that's sicily and the islands which might sound weird because you're like uh sicily's already an island well sicily's the mainland for many islands there are island chains like near Tunisia, Libya, off the west coast, off the north coast, like near Calabria. And so it's covering like a broader area. And I, I, what I love about this book is like the especially the English um, versions are just like if you're if you know English, you're not going to make this. And if yeah. you're Italian, then you're completely comfortable with having no real ingredients and just some like visual and aroma cues. So there's this really cool one, which is basically like, you know, capretto sulle tegole, um, which is a suckling kid goat um, that's cooked over uh, terracotta um, roof tiles. You know, like those beautiful like terracotta roofs that you see all over cooked on those so have you cooked much i imagine you haven't done the kid goat on the roof no i haven't but i have done like a bunch of the um like i did the cassata um the caponata i did like basically lamb shank not lamb shank no like lamb leg um that you like put incisions in and then stuff with like garlic and then roast what is cassata cassata is a ricotta 
cake that is studded with, well, very, ricotta that's been sweetened and studded with um, chocolate chips. And then it's like sort of laid on, um, like laid on and then wrapped in uh, pan di spagna, kind of like pound cake, and then sheathed in marzipan and then topped with candied fruits. It's a very ornate, very ornate dish. So, I mean, it's interesting looking at the book, like I said, when you, these other guys who made the documentary and cooked Vitello Donato, chicken liver pasta, and Milanese cutlets, food that we eat and unanimously know and people love, and it's delicious. Is there lots of dying regional foods throughout the book? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, like, the, the two iconic Sicilian dishes, pasta con le sarde and caponata. Even though pasta con le sarde is more like a Western Sicilian thing, it's been adopted all over the island and beyond. Those are in the book, but then there are other things that are, abs- I, would, I would presume, are almost totally vanished, like... Um, kid's head with an omelet basically you you like scramble eggs inside this the bisected Delicious. skull of a um, uh <laughs> of a goat not a kid not a, like a human child obviously a kid <laughs> like in the testina di capretto sense well you another one i was looking at that you sent me the tripe which i couldn't really decipher because that one wasn't in english oh yeah the the tripe one um i just kind of wanted to give you a sense of how like handwritten and homemade. Um, it's the uh, tripe pie, mm. basically. Yeah, big up the tripe pie. But even in the two pages you sent me, so there's broad fava beans or broad bean mash, chickpea fritters. Those are ones that have stuck in and are absolutely delicious. Yeah, panelle are other classics, really typical street mm. food. Also nice to eat sitting down. Yeah, we lost track a bit, but I wanted Katie to tell you about her podcast. Should I just tell people where they can find me? Yeah, we'll talk, you know, you can talk about it a bit as well. Um, I do a podcast called Gola uh, with the smartest person I know, Dr. Danielle Caligari of Dartmouth University. Um, it's about Italian food and culture. Um, we are really, really into breaking down the like romantic stereotypes of Italy to talk about labor issues and marginalized communities and um the historical basis of food culture rather than you know just kind of like saying like italy's great because that's the easiest thing in the world to do yeah it's not talked about it's not talked about food insecurity or political issues people just like oh i love italy and i think italy especially so because i haven't even so easy to love it's super pretty okay what else like there are other things that are really really critical to the to like the very essence of the place's existence and like uh, I highly recommend if you're, you know, if you want to listen to like a fun episode about cool stuff, like there's a pasta episode that's great. <laughs> if you want to listen to one that talks about migration and labor exploitation and like why oranges cost a euro 20 a kilo, um, then definitely check out the a pretty recent episode. We chat with our colleague, Migrants of the Mediterranean reporter, you know, and discuss like who grows the food that we're so in love with. Who's actually cultivating it? Who is being exploited in order to keep it cheap? And I think those are conversations that are important to have because, yeah, of course, everyone wants to come here and eat a like fuckload of pasta. You know, if if the consumer doesn't put pressure on the restaurant owner uh, who doesn't put pressure on the farmer, then like, no, there are no improvements. It's just status quo. And we know what the status quo is. It's well documented. And it is the you know, center of a true humanitarian emergency that's been going on in Italy for 
decades. Thanks for listening. You should all listen to Gola for a much-needed critical take on food systems and culture in Italy. I do not own any of the Mbocca series, but if you do, you're lucky. Get in touch with me at a Cook's Library Instagram. I'd love to know more. If you're listening on Spotify, follow. If on Apple, subscribe. It helps other people find the show. Thanks again. Keep cooking and keep eating.